as we come to this time of year every year, it's always a challenge because there's only two authors that really talk about the Christmas story in the Gospels. And um, so you kind of have to go back to those passages every year. And when you have a group like ours here who's been a part of you know, uh, the church or even been a part of my teaching for longer than what we've been doing as a church here, it's kind of like you, know, you go back to the same passages and you just redo them you know, and you're afraid of putting people to sleep. And so you're always looking for maybe what something new we can learn or some new approach maybe to the same passages. And so I do get sweaty palms. I go, oh my gosh, and it's, it stresses me out. Because I'm like, I don't, you know. Um, so as we came to this year, I reached out to Dustin, and he had an idea that we examined for a little bit, and we kind of played with that a little bit, and then we kind of came to the point where we're like, no, that would be pushing things a little bit too far. And then I really got nervous, because that was just about, what, three weeks ago? Is that about right? Something like three or four weeks ago? Um, <clears throat> so then um, something just kind of hit me. And it was that you have the, these gospel accounts of the birth of Christ, But then I started thinking, you know, I'm not aware of any New Testament authors that specifically reference the Christmas story. But there are. And so as I started sort of thinking through it, I'm like, when do the other New Testament authors actually mention not just Christ's coming, but specifically having to come as a baby or in the flesh? And in doing that, what was their point in doing that. And so that kind of started this whole process. And I identified, and there's probably more than this, but I identified six different passages that specifically mention Christ having to come in the flesh, which is a reference to his birth. And they use it to build their arguments. And so that's how we sort of settled on what we're going to talk about the next three weeks. And Dustin already alluded to this. Um, We're going to look at Romans chapter 8, and we're going to look at Galatians chapters 3 and 4 today. Because Paul uses the the birth of Christ there to talk about how Jesus had to come in the flesh to redeem us from the curse of the law and to fulfill the law in us. And so we're going to talk about that today. John basically references that in John chapter 1. And in John chapter, or 1 John chapter 1 as well, he references Christ having to come in the flesh, and he focuses on rescuing us from darkness in both of those passages. And then lastly, in our final week, Hebrews chapter 2 and Philippians chapter 2, the authors there, Paul and the author of Hebrews, references the birth of Christ coming in the flesh and talks about how it helped us to overcome death. And so we're going to focus on those over the course of the next three weeks. So it's going to be a bit, <coughs> excuse me, theologic, but um, I think it'll be good for us. So today we're focusing on Galatians 3 and 4, as well as Romans chapter 8, and this idea that Jesus came to redeem us from the curse of the law. So there'll be two primary points today. One is that he redeems us from the curse of the law. The second point is that he will fulfill the law in us. And those two are somewhat related, and we'll see how that plays out. So let's look at this first one. You can just turn to Galatians chapters 3 and 4, kind of have your finger there. Um, Let's first of all talk about what does it mean to be cursed, because the point this morning is going to be that Jesus came in the flesh. He had to come as a baby in order to redeem us from the curse of the law. What does it mean to be cursed? The Bible kind of lays that out for us. To, to be under a curse means to fall under judgment. Most usually in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, it refers to being under the judgment of God. 
Now there are some other elements of cursing, being cursed by the ground or in relation to the ground and other things we'll see, but let's just look on this for just a second. Genesis chapter 3, you don't have to turn here, I'll run down through some of these, I'll have you, if you want, you can start making your way to Deuteronomy chapter 27 as I run through some of these. But in Genesis chapter 3 verse 14, we see God cursing the serpent after sin. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, deceiving Eve, leading mankind into sin, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And so the serpent was cursed. A few verses later, we see God cursing the ground as a result of Adam's sin. Then Adam, he said, or he said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. And so when God cursed the ground, it wouldn't function the way that it's supposed to. It was going to bring up thorns and thistles now for Adam when he would work the ground. Genesis chapter 4 verse 11, we remember the story of Cain and Abel. And after that plays out, the Lord looks at Cain and he says, Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Probably one of the most important or most critical passages as it relates to being cursed, specifically in relationship to our relationship with God the Father, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 27. Go ahead and if you're not already there, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 27. We're going to read a chunk of scripture with this to kind of lay the groundwork for us. But Deuteronomy chapter 27, starting in verse 15, just listen to some of what is said here. Cursed is the man who takes an idol or a molten image and an abomination to the Lord, the work of your hands, of the craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed is he who dishonors his father and mother, and all who, <clears throat> and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who distorts the justice due to an alien, orphan, or widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies to his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's skirt, and all the people shall say, Amen. Now that continues all the way down through the end of the chapter. The idea there is that there is a curse for sin. When you do wrong... You're cursed. That's what Paul lays, or that's what Deuteronomy lays out in chapter 27 there. That's what we see throughout the rest of the scriptures. Paul actually quotes or references back to Deuteronomy 27 when he discusses the law in his letter to the Galatians. You can turn there, put your finger there, as we will come there in just a second. But the Galatians had actually fallen prey to the heresy that obedience to the law, the Old Testament law, would bring about salvation. However, Paul reminded them that salvation can not come through the works of the law. In fact, the law condemns. He gives a couple of arguments for this. The first is that righteousness comes by faith. And he uses Abraham to demonstrate that. Abraham, if you remember, came 400 years before the law. And Abraham was saved, not because of the law, therefore, but because of his faith. So salvation cannot come through the law. Second, the law demands perfect obedience. What we just read in Deuteronomy 27 pretty much kind of makes that case for us. What the law demands is perfect obedience. No man could fulfill the law, and as a result, he was cursed. This is true of both the Jew 
who had the written law, and according to Paul in Romans 1, even the Gentile who has the law written on his heart can't even fulfill that law. And so the law demands perfect obedience. It's another reason why it can't save. Third, the law was never intended to save. It can't save because God didn't give it for that purpose. It was given, we're told, to identify sin, to reveal sin as sin. It's sort of basically saying, this is a list of rules. This tells you what sin is. Don't do this. And so it was given for that reason. Paul elsewhere also says that it was given as a tutor then to lead us to Christ. One of the things we do with our children is we lay out ground rules, don't we? Don't do this. Do this. And why do we do that? One, to keep them from sinning if we can. But second, to tell them what righteousness is like, what they should do, how to honor us as parents and how to please ultimately the Lord. And so that's another reason the law can't save. It was not given for the purpose of salvation. It was given to identify sin as sin and to be a tutor that would then lead us to Christ. It reveals our need to us. When we are revealed as a sinner, we now know that we need a Savior, and that leads us ultimately to Christ. Fourth, Paul says, it shuts up everyone under sin. It becomes this prison of sorts, and it locks us up under sin. Paul describes that in the book of Romans as well, how once he discovered the law, or the law was revealed to him, all of a sudden now sin comes to the surface, and it's like this trap almost. It sort of works in us and riles us up. It's interesting how you tell somebody, don't touch this, and what's the first thing they want to do? I just kind of want to reach out and touch it anyway. Sin sometimes is stirred up by the rules and the laws. And Paul gets at that. And so it shuts up everyone, imprisons them, is literally the term Paul uses, under sin. So Paul's argument to the Galatians, and this is all prep work for what we're going to see, is that the law cannot save, it can't result in salvation, it's ultimately in some respects leads to a curse, God's judgment for sin, and ultimately the penalty for death. So that's essentially Paul's argument that he lays out in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Galatians, and then we finally get to Galatians chapter 4. So I'm going to read to you verses 4 and 5 where he references something for us here. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. He says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. What's that a reference to? That's our Christmas story. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. There's the Christmas story. That's where Paul references Jesus Christ coming in the flesh as a baby, born of a woman. And we see two primary things there. But I want to just focus on how this all sort of plays out. He says, when the fullness of time came, it simply means that when God was ready to implement that part of his redemptive plan. It had been hundreds of years since the close of the Old Testament. And God finally said, it's now time. It's the fullness of time. It's when God implements that last part of his salvation plan. If you look back at verse three or chapter 3, verse 13, I want to read a couple of other things for us here. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. 
having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Galatia, or to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit. You notice there it's worded a little differently. It says, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That becomes the context for what he says now in chapter 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent his Son. For what purpose? For what he said back in chapter 3. To redeem us from the curse of the law. So he says, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem us, redeem those who are under the law. Redeem them from what? The curse that is under the law. In order for the Lord to do this for us, two things needed to be true. The first is that very first phrase, born of a woman. Jesus had to be fully human. He had to come in the flesh in order to redeem us from the curse of the law. It's the only way he could do it. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says that there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. But elsewhere, chapter 10 verse 4, it says that the blood of bulls and of goats could not take away sin. So what does that mean? The only sacrifice that could take away the sin of a human being is the sacrifice of another human being. The shedding of the blood of a human being. So we're all condemned, we're all cursed because we can't live out God's laws perfectly. So we are cursed, condemned, we face death. And the only way for us to be redeemed, bought back from the curse of that law, to remove the curse from us, is that there has to be a sacrifice of blood. But not just any sacrifice. It has to be the sacrifice of someone exactly like us. And so the first thing Paul says is that in order for Jesus to redeem us from that curse, he had to be born of a woman. I've actually had conversations with unsaved people about this. That seems awfully cruel. You know, why couldn't God have sent Jesus just miraculously? He shows up on earth and it's not the way it works. God did that in the Old Testament. We believe that Jesus came as Christophanes or Theophanes in the Old Testament. One of them was when he walked with Abraham. We believe that was Jesus Christ in pre-incarnate form coming in flesh, but not really flesh. Meaning he hadn't been born yet of a woman was not fully man. At that time, he was simply fully God, but he took on the form, if you will, and walked on the earth along with Abraham temporarily. God couldn't do that this time. He had to literally become human flesh. And the only way for that to happen is through the work of the Holy Spirit, the seed within Mary, incubating for nine months, and being born of flesh. Fully God, but fully human. And it had to happen that way in order for him to redeem us from the curse of the law. The second thing that had to happen was that he had to be born under the very law that cursed us. Because that's ultimately what he's redeeming us from. He says here, born of a woman, born under the law. Think about this for a moment. If Jesus wasn't held to the same standards that we are, then he couldn't possibly redeem us from what we're condemned by. He had to face the same law that we did. 
in part because he's human. And so he was born not just of woman, but also born under the very same law that we were born under. God's law. That every human being is held accountable to. So Jesus was born also under the law. And specifically even, not just Gentile, but he was specifically born as a Jew. Specifically, not just to the law written on human hearts that Paul references in Romans, but specifically under the Old Testament law, the most strict, there's a different sort of accountability if you think about it. Meaning, Gentiles, their own conscience, because the law of God is written on their hearts. And so now their conscience, Paul says, either frees them or condemns them, and we find out later it always just condemns. But they're judged according to what's written on their heart and that's a smaller set, if I can call it this way. But then when God spells it out, 600 and some odd plus commands, and really lays that out, now that's a strict form. I mean, that, you know it all, right? And Jesus held accountable to that. He's born under that. And so... Paul says these two things have to take place. Jesus had to be born of a woman, come in the flesh as a baby, but he also had to be born under the very law that cursed us in order that, and he says here, verse 5, so that he might redeem those who are under the law. And again, I believe that is primarily a reference to redeeming us from the curse of the law that he lays out in chapter 3, verse 13, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. So what we basically find here is that the first point is that we're under this curse because of the law. Because of God's law. None of us can live up to that standard. The law was given so that we might see sin for what sin really is. And elsewhere Paul says that it actually causes sin to somewhat increase. Meaning we become aware of it now and now it kind of works within us and tempts us. It's still a good thing because it's designed to do that. It might reveal sin to us, tell us who we are, what our hearts are really like, so that we know we desperately need a Savior. We know that we're cursed. And so we cry out to God for release from that. Remove the curse. But in order for God to do that, He had to send Jesus Christ in the flesh as a baby, born to a woman under the law. And in doing that, Jesus Christ then, because He became the sin sacrifice for us, He was able to remove that curse by offering up himself as the blood sacrifice. But he had to be born of a woman, born under the law, in order to do that. And so the first point this morning is that, why did Jesus have to come as a baby? Why couldn't God have done it some other way? Why do we have the Christmas story? Because Jesus had to come in the flesh to redeem us from the curse of the law. Now, That wasn't enough for God to redeem us from the curse of the law. Rather, his purpose was ultimately to make it so that the law would be completely fulfilled in us. Jesus has already paid the penalty, but I kind of liken it to this. You know, it's, it's never enough just to not do bad. It's never enough to just not sin. And what I mean by that is God wants so much more. You know, if you could just, and let's say you could do this, we can't, but let's just say you could just stop sinning. Does that make you righteous? I say, come on, head shake now. Some of you are going, not really sure, don't know what the answer is. God doesn't just want us to not sin, He wants us to do righteousness. And so we've got the two sides of the coin here. One is that Jesus had freed us up from that curse for doing wrong, 
But that just kind of leaves us there. What God wanted was more. He wanted us to fulfill the law. He wanted us to do good. Not just don't do wrong, but to actually do good. You know, I've tried to raise my own kids this way. It's not just enough to not do bad things. We want to encourage you to do the right thing. It's not just enough not just to curse people. We want you to bless people, you know? So when you go in and eat at a restaurant, try to encourage the person sitting there. When you talk to somebody... I got... I tell you, this whole week was like that for me. Because literally... As I'm making a phone call, I don't know if that's going to be a 10-minute conversation or an hour conversation. I had one, one person that I called this week. She was a manager. And uh, she was at home, had her laptop. And part of the process was having her go to a website and to log in with her email address. And as she got to this website, she's like, well, I can't see the login box. I'm like, well, it should be there right in the middle of the screen. She's like... I don't see it. It's just there's no login box there. I'm like, okay. What does it say at the top of the browser window? What's the... And she read it back to me. It was the right website. I'm like, well, then right in the middle of the screen is the login box. She's like, I'm just not seeing it. So I'm like, can you describe to me what you see? Well, it's just... I just can't see the... And an hour of that. An hour of that. And finally I said, you know what? Let's put this on hold until tomorrow. When you get into the office tomorrow, we'll pick it back up. But I was, during most of that hour, struggling with being gracious. I didn't want to be gracious. And after, at this point, probably 60 or 70 others that I had dealt with, it was getting really hard to be gracious. So the next day, she's in the office, we start the process, the same thing happens. 30 minutes. And I'm like, I don't know where to go. I can't see her. I don't know where to go with this. So finally I said, you know what? Go get, and I told her to go get another person in the office. Another person in the office came back and I said, what do you see on the screen? She said, oh, there's a dialogue box in front of the screen. I said, can you close it, please? She said, yep, clicks the button. Oh, now I see the login. 30 seconds! Okay, stand up, walk away, pray. Dear God, please help me be gracious. Help me be kind. Help me be good to this person. That was my week. There were days where I only got through one or two people an hour and I should have been able to do six or seven in an hour. That was hard. But I kept telling myself, try to encourage them because they're all stressed out like you are. And so it wasn't enough that I just wasn't angry, mean, and frustrated and directed it at them. So I really struggled. I really tried keep saying, you know what, this is okay. Because they could sense things aren't going well here and they could sense most of the time that the issue was them. That it wasn't that I wasn't explaining it correctly. That they were just struggling to find what, they, what was right there in front of them and that they would say, I'm so sorry. I know I should. And I just, you know what, that's okay. We're all in this together. And so I tried to change the tone of my voice. So I tried desperately. Encourage, encourage. Because they're all in the same boat. We're all frustrated. We're all angry. We haven't been working. We've had customers get upset because we couldn't close the... So just over the top, gracious and kind and gentle. Put on the velvet gloves, stroke their back, you know, brush their hair if you have to, whatever you have to do. I'm talking figuratively, obviously. So God didn't just want to redeem us from the curse of the law. He wants us to be able to fulfill that law. And that's the second point. That Jesus came in the flesh 
so that the law could be fulfilled in us. Jesus came in the flesh, had to come in the flesh, so that the law, God's righteous standards, could ultimately be fulfilled in us. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. I'll read them and then we're going to go back verse by verse. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the law, but according to the Spirit. So what does Paul say here? Let's go ahead and look at this verse by verse. Go back to the very first verse again. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's really a reference back to what we've just sort of discussed, but it's part of Paul's argument here. Back in chapter 5, verses 12 through 17, go ahead and look back at that. Look at what Paul says there. I'm going to read it to you. Chapter 5, starting at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, that's the curse, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. It wasn't just Adam's sin that condemns us. We condemn ourselves because we all sin. For until the law was in the world, I'm sorry, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Why? Because the law is written on their hearts. Even those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of Christ who is to come, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God by the gift or I'm sorry, and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, we were all condemned, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign, look at this, in life through the one Jesus Christ. Now go back to chapter 8 verse 1. Again, he says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Because of what Paul just got done saying. We're freed up from the condemnation because of the righteous act of Jesus Christ. Christ. Essentially, because of Adam's transgression, we're all under sin, but we also sin ourselves. We can't blame Adam. Now, this word condemnation comes from two Greek words. It comes from one Greek word, which means against, and the other word is to judge. So it means to have a judgment against us. So to be condemned means that there's a judgment against us. Adam's one transgression plunged all of mankind, the entire human race, into sin. And as a result, every one of us sins. And unless Christ comes back to rapture us, we'll all die as a result. Those without Christ will also not just die spiritually or physically, but they will die spiritually as well. We all inherited a sin nature, and as a result, we all sin, and we're all facing condemnation. But we no longer face that condemnation if we are in Jesus Christ. 
So those who are in Christ don't face condemnation, right? That's the first part of Paul's argument. We'll keep going though. Look at verse 2. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, one of the challenges with the book of Romans is Paul repeats the word law over and over and over again. But he uses it at least five different ways. Which means when you see the word law, it doesn't always mean Old Testament law. He uses it at least five different ways. Sometimes you'll notice in your translation that sometimes the L is capitalized, and that's because the translators assume Paul is referencing the Old Testament law there. Other times it's a lowercase L, meaning it's not the law, it's another law. But even those sometimes don't always line up. There's sometimes in your translation where it may say the law or a capital L, but it may not necessarily be the law. So you've got to be real careful. Let me just give you a brief rundown of how Paul uses it. Sometimes he's using the generic sense, just law in general. We know that there's laws of nature and laws just in general, right? Sometimes he uses it to refer to the Old Testament Mosaic law, those 600 and some odd commands that God gave to the Jews, all the ceremonial stuff. Sometimes he uses it to refer to God's moral law, not specifically the Old Testament law, but God's moral law, and even the law written on men's hearts, the thing to guide our conscience. Other times, Paul uses it to refer to the whole entire Old Testament. Not just that specific Mosaic law, the commands, but all of the Old Testament. And then other times he uses it in a very different way, kind of a more generic way of sorts, but he talks about the law of faith, the law of righteousness, the law of his mind, he talks about the law of the spirit, he talks about the law of sin and death, and in those instances, it's sort of like this law principle that guides behavior, is another way to say it. Okay? So if it's the law of the spirit, it's how the Spirit guides and the principles that come from the Spirit. If it's the law of sin and death, it's the principles that cause us to sin, sin and death. And so it's crazy when you get into it because you've really got to sort of pay attention to the line of argument to figure out which law is Paul talking about here when it just says the law. If he says the law of sin and death, you know that it's a law related to that. So what's Paul doing in verse 2 here, well he refers to it as the law of the spirit of life. I believe he's using it there in a, in a sense of it's just sort of a power or authority over somebody guided by the spirit. In other words, the law of the spirit means that it's the spirit that is guiding and has the authority and has the, um, uh, the work in a person's life to drive them and to cause them to behave a certain way. That's what the law of the Spirit is. So you're going to live by one law or another. He mentions here two different laws, the law of the Spirit, and he contrasts that with the law of sin and death. As believers, we are supposed to be driven by or guided by principles related to the Spirit, not principles related to sin and death. Does that make sense? And it gets a little muddy sometimes, but that's really what he's doing here. And he's saying, the law of the Spirit of Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. So, what we basically have is on the one hand, the law of the Spirit, which is in Christ, which means we are governed by or under the authority of or under the power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5 tells us that we're to be under the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. We're to live by the Spirit, not by the flesh. And so he says that this law, these guiding principles of the Spirit, set us free from living by the law 
of sin and death. Those two are in conflict with one another. Fortunately, those of us that are in Christ have the law of the Spirit. And that's supposed to free us up. Look at chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. He gives us an interesting picture of this. For those who are according to the flesh, they're living by the principles, the law of of sin and death. He says, for those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, those who live by the law of the Spirit in Christ, he says, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind is set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. So in other words, when you live by the law of sin and death, what's the result? Death. When your mind is set on the law of the spirit, it's life. Right? Because the mind is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. So when you live by the law of sin and death, when that guides you, it says you're not subject. You don't. You can't do the law. You can't fulfill the law. You can't do righteousness. It's impossible to do that when you live by the law of sin and death. Plain and simple. He says, verse eight: For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you are not in Christ, if your mind is not focused on the law of the Spirit, if the Spirit is not what your mind and heart are focused on. It is impossible for you to please God. Plain and simple. It says it here in black and white. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Move on. However, you, those of us who come to Christ, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So in essence, what Paul has basically said here is that the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. Prior to coming to Christ, we lived by a particular law, a set of principles based on our flesh. It was ultimately, Paul describes it as, the law of sin and death. That's how we lived. That was our guiding principles in life. That's what motivated us. That is what moved us. We were under its authority, but we were also under its power. I'll say it this way. It was impossible not to sin because you were governed by the power of sin, which is why mankind gives into it. But he says, but... You've been set free from that when you are in Christ because now you're guided by, under the authority of, under the power of, under the influence of, the law of the spirit of life because you are in Christ. Now you can choose not to sin. Many of us still do, but we don't have to. We can't just say, well, that's just the way it is. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Guess what? I don't have a choice. I still have to. No, you have the choice not to sin. It's hard. Paul even describes that struggle himself in the book of Romans. I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. I'm a wretched man. That's the reality. But we don't have to. We've been set free. In many respects, it's that already not yet. Meaning, our reality is we've been set free from that. That's what we're told. That's our position in Christ. But we still struggle working that out. And we will until we shed this, as my pastor says, this tent 
that's deteriorating. There were many times this week where flesh got a hold of me and I was starting to get a little short with people and God had to remind me, slow down, be gentle, be gracious, be over the top and I would, in my head, go. Boy, and so I'd say, you know, if I'm sounding a little short here, I apologize for that because I, we just need to get through this and we're all in this together. And So we all struggle in some respects but we ultimately have been set free and because of that I was able to stop and go, you know what, this, you don't need to be short, Mike. Be gracious, be gentle. I could choose to live by the law of the Spirit rather than the law of my flesh and sin and death. So, we've been set free. The question is, so how is that possible? Paul answers that. How does the law of the Spirit of life set us free from the law of sin and death? Look at the next verse, verse 3. He says, for what the law could not do, what could the law not do? Set us free from the law of sin and death. And in this case, law here is, I believe, a reference to the Old Testament law. The law, God giving us all the things that are required and necessary to be righteous and to be right with Him, that could not free us, redeem us from the law of sin and death. So he says, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. What does that mean? Your flesh can't do it. I bet you if I gave you ten things not to do this weekend, I'd pick some hard things like not lose your cool, not lose your temper, not say something unkind. I'll give you a list of ten things. You can write them down. How many of you think you could come back next week and go, I did all ten? Probably not. Yeah, it depends on my list is what he says. I'd make it a pretty hard list. You know? We just couldn't do it, right? And that's ten, let alone the 600 plus that God gave. So he says, the law couldn't do it because the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. So he says what? What the law could not do, God did. That is a powerful theological statement. God did. And how did God do it? He says this, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's the Christmas story. He's referencing there the birth of Christ. He came, born of woman, born under the law, born in the flesh. Why? As an offering for sin. And as a result, he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned the law of sin and death. So law, he refers to the Old Testament. What could the law not do? It couldn't save us. It couldn't redeem us from the law of sin and death because it was weak when it came to the flesh. This means that no matter how hard we might try to appease God through His law, we can't do it. You know, the Pharisees thought they could, but they also came up with all these additional rules and regulations to try to help them do God's work. So they took those 600 plus laws and they said, hmm, we know it's hard. So now we've got to add all these other laws that we have to keep so that we don't break God's laws. Oh, so that mat you have to lay on, you can't move that more than you know six inches on a Sunday or on a Saturday because if you move that, then you're violating the other law of God. And so they come up with all these other laws. It was impossible for them to keep them, which is why Jesus says, come all who are weary. They couldn't do that. There's no way we could keep the law. We can't even keep what's on our own conscience. 
let alone the law of God. And God knew that. And so what the law couldn't do, then God did. And how did he do it? He sent his son Jesus Christ in the flesh so that he could do it. He could keep the law. And in doing so, he was able then to free us from having to keep the law ourselves. See how that works? We couldn't do it because it's weak in the flesh. But Christ could do it, even though he was flesh, because he's also God. And only God can keep the perfect law. Only God can keep his law perfectly. And Jesus did that. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. We'll go back there real quickly. Galatians chapter 3. Look at verses 19 through 25. Why the law then? It was added because of transgression, having been ordained through angels and by the agency of the mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise has been made. So he says here the law was basically given ultimately until the seed, it's a reference to Jesus Christ, would come. Now a mediator is not for one party only where God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God may it never be? For if the law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But scripture, the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Now look at this. So that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you all are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So essentially what he's saying here is that Christ came... And we are now clothed in Christ. When God looks at us, what he sees is Christ. And what he sees in Christ is one who ultimately fulfilled the law. Christ was perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly righteous. He perfectly fulfilled the law. And now, because we are in Christ, we are clothed with him. Now jump over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Verse 20, we see the law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life, what? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he ties Jesus' coming and the righteousness found in Christ to the coming of the law. It revealed us as simple human beings, but ultimately it revealed Jesus Christ as being perfectly holy and righteous. Now, jump over to verse chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Because we might be saying, well, okay, if that's the purpose of the law, if it condemns, then how does it work out that we somehow are righteous having it been fulfilled in Christ. Look at what he says, verse 7. What shall we say that is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about covetousness or coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me, coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I once 
I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. So that's what Paul lays out, that sin, or that the law came in and ultimately as a result of that law, we see our sin and sin ultimately condemns us to death. That's what we see in the law. But then he says this, The good news is that what the law could not do, God did. God set us free from what Paul just described here by condemning sin in the flesh. The commandment we, the condemnation, I'm sorry, we deserved because of our sin, he placed on Jesus by sending him in the likeness of sinful flesh. Listen to a couple of these passages. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You guess that? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not just so that we might not be condemned, but that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Galatians 1, chapter 3 through 4. Or Galatians 1, verses 3 through 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that we might or so that he might rescue us from, his pre- from this present evil age according to the will of God the Father. So Jesus Christ ultimately bore our sins. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for it's by his wounds that we are healed. What the scriptures lays out is that Jesus Christ not only took our sin upon him and paid the price for that, but it's because of Christ that we are now able to be the righteousness of God. We are now able to be righteous. We are now able to live under the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit, fulfilling God's law because of what Christ did, because Christ now dwells within us, because we have been clothed with Christ. It's because of what he did that that's now possible. Had Jesus not born, been born in the likeness of sinful flesh and lived the perfect, sinless, holy life, then sin would not have been condemned. We'd still be loving, living under the, the law of sin and death. Look at the last verse that we want for this morning, chapter 4, well, the last one in, our, in Romans, chapter um, 8, verse 4. And this is where it all kind of comes together. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Did you catch that? All these things we've just discussed were laid upon Christ. Why? So that we might have the law fulfilled in us. He doesn't say in Christ there. That's a given. It's already been fulfilled in Christ. But God now, because of our relationship with Christ, the law of God has now been fulfilled in us. Think about that for a minute. What did we do to fulfill the law of Christ, or the law of God? Accepted what Christ did. That's it. Because we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, because we are now in Christ, when God looks at us, what he sees is, you have fulfilled the law. Why? Because Christ did. And Christ is now in us, and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 
So all of the righteous requirements of God have been met in us. Not because we did it, but because Christ did it on our behalf. He not only laid his own life down to pay the penalty and to redeem us from the curse of the law, Jesus Christ, because he fulfilled the law perfectly himself, and because we have now placed our trust in him, because he lives within us, now God looks at us and says, you fulfilled the law. So it wasn't just removing the curse, it's that the law has now been fulfilled in us. All of the righteous requirements God requires have been taken care of. Remember, the law demanded perfect obedience. That's the only way the law is fulfilled, is perfect obedience, and Christ did that. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, Do you think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets? I did not come to abolish, but what? Fulfill. And that isn't just a reference to fulfilling the prophecies. Jesus came to fulfill every one of God's righteous requirements. Jesus did it. And because he did it, it's now attributed to us. Because Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law, God now considers that requirement to have been fully met in you and I, who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 4 says that we can now walk according to the Spirit, not the flesh now, because of what Jesus Christ did. You can read verses 5-11 through on your own there, because Paul describes what that actually looks like. We set our minds, we've already read it, but we set our minds now on the things of Christ, the things of the Spirit. That's now possible because of what Christ did. So what's our takeaway in all of this? Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Think about that for a second. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. We don't have to fulfill the law anymore as a strict requirement. That's been taken care of. But now, instead of focusing on the law, as the Jews did, we focus on the work of the Spirit. We submit ourselves to the work of the Spirit. We submit ourselves to the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We shouldn't focus on the law. We're not attempting now to check off all those items. We focus on Christ. We focus on the Spirit and are led and directed by Him. And if we do that, God takes care of the rest. We had hints of that in the Old Testament. After God gave the law, all 600 commands, you could imagine the, the Jews standing there after listening to Moses and their eyes are all glossed over. They're like, oh, how are we going to do it? And God says, don't worry. If you love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that'll all be taken care of. The problem is they had trouble loving him with their heart, soul, mind, and strength because they were in the flesh. But now that Christ has come, and he's fulfilled all of those things, Christ now dwells in us, two things are true. He's redeemed us from the curse of the law, but he's also fulfilled the law in us. Isn't that pretty amazing? We oftentimes think of Jesus coming as a baby just to die on a cross for us and pay the penalty for our sins, but it's actually more than that because that's just being redeemed from the curse. But Christ came for so much more than that. God's righteous requirements are now fulfilled in us because of what Christ did and us placing our trust in him. So it was more than just paying the penalty. It was coming so that all of God's righteous requirements would be met. It's not just about being about not doing the bad things, not doing sin, but now having God look at us and say, all my requirements have been fulfilled in you 
because he sees Christ in us. Amen?